A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. that we need its words uh, to encourage us to strengthen our faith and to make us more like you. And Lord, we pray that you would do all of those things this morning as we spend time together in this passage. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. So if you've been with us for the past few months, you have been with us as we've gone through the book of Revelation. And as we've said time and time again, the book of Revelation, it's this, this divine disclosure. It's Jesus pulling back the curtain to show us what is ahead, to show us where things all end, to give us a glimpse of the future. And what that future holds, it's on the cover of your bulletin, is that Jesus wins every single time, forever and always. And we, his people, have this promise of eternity with him in a place untouched by sin, death, disease, sadness. So if these things are promised to us, if they're guaranteed, Jesus has already won, then why hasn't that happened yet? Why are we still waiting? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? As I was considering what to preach on this morning, um, Those were the questions that I wanted to ask because those are the questions that I'm asking. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth sound amazing, right? That's what we spent the whole past summer looking at is the amazing glory that awaits us in Jesus. So why can't we just have all of that now? I think most of us are probably in some form or fashion painfully aware of how broken this world still is, right? Things are not as they were meant to be. This world has so many great things, don't get me wrong, but there is so much about it that is impossibly hard, too. So I don't know where you may be feeling that this morning, whether you may be feeling disappointment or loneliness in the relationships that you have or that you wish you had. Maybe it's this frustrated search for purpose and meaning in your life. Or maybe it's this insatiable craving for things that can never really keep you satisfied. So wherever you may be this morning, all these things, all these things that are wrong with this world lead us to ask the question, where is Jesus? Why isn't he here? Why hasn't he come back yet? And you know, friends, we're in good company because God's people have been asking that question from the moment that he left. And we're asking it because we're tired, right? We're weary. We're tired of experiencing pain and loss and disappointment and abuse and all these things. 
We're tired of our own struggles against sin that we can never seem to really conquer. We're tired of losing loved ones to death. And you know, friends, Mary and Martha were asking these exact same questions after they sent word to their friend, Jesus, that their brother Lazarus was on his deathbed. But what I want us to look at together this morning is Jesus' response to these questions, these agonies. Because this is why we need a passage like John 11. Because it's a story about some of Jesus' closest friends in their darkest hours. And hours in which he doesn't come until it's seemingly too late. But as we already read, Mary and Martha don't really get what they asked for. Nor do they get it when they asked for it. Instead, after a time of this agonizing grief and disappointment and waiting, they get something unimaginably better. And what I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus purposely delays his coming. He does it on purpose. He intentionally delays. He wasn't busy. He didn't get stuck in traffic. He didn't come down with the flu. He deliberately delays coming to the people that he loves. Why? Well, John tells us the answer right at the beginning of this passage. He tells us the answer to Mary and Martha's wise, and he tells us the answer to our wise as well. And he says it's for three things. If you look at verses 4 to 6, and then lastly in 15, he tells you the answer to those questions. In verse 4, he says that everything that he is about to do is going to happen for the glory of God. But it's not just about him and his glory, too. In verse 5, he says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Therefore, verse 6, he delays. Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Therefore, he doesn't come. Hopefully, that's making you a little confused. Like, did I read that right? Like, something's not adding up here. So I I really want y'all to not miss this. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. I want you to see the connection here because that is what matters to us today. So follow the thought here. Jesus loved them, therefore he delayed. Knowing full well that Lazarus would die. But then he gives us kind of the final answer in verse 15 where he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let's backtrack a little bit. He loved them. He heard that Lazarus was sick. He had the power to do something about it. Therefore, he didn't go. He didn't help. If Jesus really loved them, why on earth would he let that happen? Well, maybe he just didn't realize how bad the sickness was. Maybe he thought it was just the cold or something and Lazarus was being a wimp and he'd get over it. And, you know, it was better that he didn't enable that kind of behavior like was he caught by surprise i don't think so in fact what we know from another story in matthew 8 is that jesus could have actually healed lazarus from afar he didn't have to go to him to heal him he could have said the word and he would have been healed right then and there so what jesus's delay 
and Lazarus's resulting death meant for Mary and Martha is that they had to grapple with suffering and the seeming absence of their God. So why does Jesus delay when he could have helped, when he could have changed things? Why not prevent death? Why not heal Lazarus? Why wait? Maybe you've felt like Mary and Martha before at some point in your life. Maybe you're feeling that right now. It's like, where's God? Why have I been waiting so long for this thing to happen? You know, maybe this story hits a little too close to home for some of you this morning. Maybe you've been praying for weeks or months or even years that that person you love would come to know Jesus as their savior. And they haven't. Maybe you've been praying for that person that you love, or maybe for yourself, for healing from some chronic illness or maybe even terminal disease. Or maybe you've been praying for your whole life for that sin that you struggle with to be taken away, and it's still there. Or maybe it's some desire in your life that you've been asking for and asking for, and it hasn't come. Maybe you and your spouse have been battling infertility for years. Or maybe you and your spouse are in a really difficult season of your marriage and you don't see a way out of it. Or maybe you want to be married and you're not. You're single and it doesn't seem like anybody is interested in you. Maybe you're not as successful or smart or beautiful as you want to be. And it feels like God just really doesn't care. Has anybody ever been there before? I sure have. And what happens, I think, for us in these moments when it feels like God isn't there, or at the very least, he's just taking a sweet time to do what we're asking, these these disappointments begin to sink into our hearts, and we start to doubt and question him. We think that if God delays, it means that he's indifferent, that he doesn't really care for us. But what the rest of this passage shows us is just how deeply Jesus does care for us in our grief. And how his care for us is this glorious thing. So here's what I want us to do real quick. I want you to look at how Jesus responds first to Martha and then to Mary. In verses 20 to 27 is his conversation with Martha. And then verses 28 to 37 is his conversation with Mary. And you may have noticed this when we were reading it, that Mary and Martha both had the same question for Jesus when they first saw him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they had said this to each other multiple times as they waited hours and then days for Jesus to come. If he had only been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. So they have kind of the same initial question, but then their responses are a little different after that. Once they come face to face with Jesus, they each bring their grief to him in a slightly different way. And he responds to them accordingly. So look first at Martha. She's the first one to come to Jesus. She kind of proactively moves towards him and almost challenges him. Because I think in her own heart, she's she's needing him to, to answer the doubts and the fears and the questions in her own heart. So she has this heartfelt conversation with Jesus about her doubt and her faith. And look at how Jesus responds to her. He engages her in that conversation and gently reminds her what is true. Namely, 
who he is. And what does he say? He says, I am resurrection. I am life. But then look at what happens with Mary. Mary is so overcome by her grief that when she comes face to face with Jesus, she just collapses on the ground, weeping. Lord, if you'd only been here. And it says Jesus was so moved, he was deeply moved and overcome by her grief so much so that he weeps. This word for deeply moved, it's this like anguish, shaking with emotion. Jesus is really feeling the grief that she is experiencing right now. If you've heard this story before, you remembered the end of the story, right? If you've heard this before, you remember the, the ending, Lazarus comes back. It's all good. Happily ever after, right? So when, when you read this, you probably didn't get very sad when Lazarus died because you're like, he's coming back to life in a couple minutes, right? <laughs> but do you know who knew the ending of the story far better than we do? It's Jesus. And what does he do? Knowing full well what he's about to do. He weeps. Verse 34 says, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He weeps. He weeps when he sees death and its effect on these three people that he loves so dearly. He weeps so much so that verse 36 says that the people who were there comforting Mary and Martha said, man, see how he must have loved him to be weeping like he is. So this is a, it's a powerful picture of the humanity of Jesus. It's a demonstration of his ministry of tears where he weeps with those that weep. And he does that for you too. He weeps even now over your sin over your addictions, over your harming and being harmed by others. He weeps over your rejections, your disappointments, your unmet desires. Jesus knows what grief is. He knows what it feels like. And he's weeping. He's shaking with emotion. He's in anguish because things are not the way they are supposed to be. So much in this world is broken and wrong. This world that he created to be so good and beautiful now is filled with pain and disappointments and brokenness. And he sees it powerfully affecting these three people that he loves. And he weeps. Jesus knew the end of the story. But that didn't change or undo the grief in the middle of it. I don't know if you guys remember from a few months ago. But there, uh, we have a, a church that's in our denomination, our sister church in Nashville, they had a church shooter that came and shot up the, the elementary school that is attached to that church. And one of the five children that died was the daughter of the senior pastor, Chad Scruggs. Her name was Hallie. And Chad had preached a sermon on this passage just a few weeks before that shooting. And somebody came up to him afterwards and asked him, Chad, do you still believe this? Do you still believe what he just preached on? And he said a couple things. First, 
If anything, I believe it even more because I need it more. But then he said this. It's a really simple thing, but I think a really profound thing. He said, God is good and we are very sad. God is good. We are very sad. Both of those things can be true. And this is why we need John 11. We see here Jesus' friend Lazarus died. He saw his friends Mary and Martha in this deep anguish and grief. And what we see is that he wasn't a cold and distant God. He didn't respond to it without emotion. He didn't have this like stoic fix to the problem. He weeps. We need this passage because see what Jesus thinks about all these things that grieve us, that hurt his people, that make us angry. He is saddened and he weeps. He grieves with us. So in his responses to Martha and Mary, we see that he does two things. He first offers truth, a reminder of truth to Martha, and then he offers his tears to Mary. And you know, that's something that you and I can offer to each other. I will often ask, if somebody comes to me with something that they're, they're really struggling with, I'll ask them, what do, you, what do you want from me right now? Do you want me to remind you what is true, or do you want me to just sit with you and be sad with you? We can, both, we can all offer both tears and truth to one another. But Jesus does something that none of us can offer. He offers love with the power to actually do something. He weeps, then he does something. He feels, then he acts. And what he does is he conquers death itself with life. Because he is life. And so at the beginning of the passage, we're told Jesus delays because he loves them. And Jesus' love was to give them what was best for them, even if they couldn't see it. As he always does. They at first definitely didn't recognize it as love, right? It caused them to question and doubt. They pled for Lazarus' life. Their brother died. And when he had been in the grave for four days, they despaired. But let me ask you this. What about that fifth day? Do you think they knew his glory and his love for them then? Even more than if Jesus had just healed Lazarus of whatever this sickness was, think of what they got to experience because of it and what we get to experience through them. That Jesus holds the power of death and life itself in his hands and the power of his voice. So the next time Mary or Martha or the disciples face something difficult, what do you think they looked back to? If they started to question God's care for them and his power to do something about it, what do you think they looked back to? Lazarus. Jesus raised him. He is the resurrection. But as amazing as Lazarus' resurrection was, it points to something far bigger and more glorious. As great as the news of Lazarus' new life was, even greater news is right around the corner. As you heard this passage read earlier, did it ring any bells for you? Did it maybe sound like another story, maybe another story about resurrection that you've heard before? 
just look at it for a second. John is being very intentional about drawing details that he does. First, there's a woman named Mary weeping outside of the tomb, right? And the tomb is described as this cave with a stone that covers it. And that stone is moved away to reveal a tomb that is newly empty. So what Mary and Martha, Lazarus, and the disciples didn't know is that Jesus was about to do something far greater. And what he was about to do was he was about to take Lazarus' place in that tomb. He's saying, Lazarus, come out, and I'm going to go in. I've come to take that death so that you can have life. And he offers that same deal to us too. We owe, but he pays. So John is drawing some obvious connections here. He's alluding to what's about to come, right? But he also makes quite, quite sure, quite clear that there are big differences between these two stories too. So what, what are those? Well, first, who moved the stone for Jesus? Nobody, right? Do you really think he could defeat death itself and then be stopped by a rock? Like, kind of crazy, right? So why was the stone moved? He didn't need it to be. It was moved so that we could see it was empty, right? Jesus was only in the tomb for three days, not four. Which Martha reminds us is the point which bodies begin to decay and smell bad, right? Lazarus, one day, would go back into another tomb because he would die again. He wasn't made sinless. He wasn't made glorious yet. But Jesus would never die again. Jesus didn't need somebody else to call him out of the tomb. He did it all on his own. And so as great as Lazarus' resurrection was, it pales in comparison to the one that is right around the corner. Because Jesus' resurrection is the moment when death itself dies. As amazing as his love and sacrifice on the cross is on its own, it's really meaningless and powerless without the resurrection. Because it shows he wins. He has the power. So friends, Jesus' power over life and death itself is the greatest love that he can offer to us. How so, you might ask? Well, what does love do? It gives you what you need most, right? And what we need most isn't an amazing job. It isn't an amazing family. It isn't healing from disease. As great as all of those things are, there's something we need even more than those things. And that is freedom from death itself. And the fullness of life offered in Christ alone. So think about when all of the apostles, except for one, face their own brutal death as martyrs, what do you think they look to? Do you think they remembered Lazarus and Jesus? When you yourself are staring at a loved one's impending death, or maybe even your own, remember Lazarus. Remember those two empty tombs. Even though Jesus promises to always give us what is best, 
Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But the Lord's loving gift of his presence in our suffering in this world is one that we want to exchange. We want to send it back, right? And instead, take the gift of eternal life with him in a place untouched by any of these things that make us sad. So why don't we have that yet? Well, let me ask you this. The grief of Martha and Mary lasted for four days. But because of it, they saw Jesus lovingly meet them with his glory and power and with his love in the midst of their darkest hours. And what they saw that day gave them a deeper sense of the hope and for life eternal and awe in the glory of Jesus that sprouted that day. It was greater than it had ever been before and could ever be without something like that. So admittedly, four days is a lot easier to handle than a lifetime of of grief and suffering and disappointment, right? But think about it in the grand scheme of eternity. As we sang a few weeks ago, our lives here are just the title page to the great story. The Lord knows that we have a hard time believing that, living in light of that. And so he tells us countless times throughout his word that that is true. Romans eight eighteen says that, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 30, also says that he will turn our mourning into dancing. He will replace our sackcloths with clothes of gladness. And so, friends, the hardest things about your life here are things that you're going to dance and rejoice over, having witnessed the love and glory of Jesus in them. The saddest things that you have to carry that at times feel like impossibly heavy burdens will become sources of joy and light and gladness and wonder as you get to see the Lord turn those ashes into something beautiful for all of eternity. And so for Lazarus, for Chad Scruggs and his family, for all who are in Christ, death, this hardest, saddest, most unnatural thing about this world, is now what actually ushers us in to life at its fullness. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, it no longer has the power to separate us from God. One of the songs we sing this morning quotes... A passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul tells us that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? A few weeks ago, I was at the Monterey Bay Aquarium with some of the teens from church here. And one of the exhibits there is, is a touch tank, you know, where you get to actually reach your hands in and touch and interact with some of the creatures there. And one of those that we got to do was a stingray tank. And they had all these signs posted everywhere that said, don't worry, the stingers have been removed. They can't hurt you. You can still touch them and be touched by them, but they can't sting you. They can't hurt you. Guys, that's what Jesus has done to death. He's removed that stinger. He's removed that barb. It can still touch you. You can still be touched by it, but it cannot harm you. Friends, I can tell you that my unshakable hope 
is that one day, someday, Jesus is going to come again. But for those of you that don't yet share that hope, I want you to hear this, if you hear anything this morning. Is verse 15 and a number of others in his word gives us the reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet. And it's that he's waiting for his people to believe. He's waiting for the repentance of his people. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Jesus isn't here yet. Guys, he's not slow. That's not slowness. It's grace and mercy having even more time to be poured out onto a world that desperately needs it. For him to come back, to come back out onto the stage and take a bow like actors do after a play, it's a declaration that the show is over, right? It's an end of the show. So Jesus coming back means the end of this world as we know it. And the beginning of a new era, an era in which our mortal bodies are going to be transformed into something glorious. And that's good news, friends. And that's something that Christians have prayed for, again, since Jesus left. There's this word, Maranatha. It's this Aramaic word that means, come, O Lord. And in the early church, that actually ended up replacing, in a lot of places, the traditional greeting of shalom, peace. Because they knew there would be no peace in this world until Jesus came again. So they would greet each other, Maranatha, Lord, come. But God's grace is front and center in that he hasn't yet answered that prayer. Because Jesus has waited, you and I have the opportunity for life everlasting with him. If Jesus had answered that prayer 15 years ago, I wouldn't be with him. Even in our own one little church, if Jesus had come back last year, there are at least a dozen people that would not be with him. That's grace and mercy. And so friends, if you haven't yet known that hope, if you haven't asked the Lord to show you that life and grace and mercy and the fullness of life, maybe he's delayed so that you can know that. Jesus doesn't have to wait. He longs for the new heavens and the new earth more than we do. But in his mercy, he's waiting. He's waiting maybe even for some of you here this morning. And so if you're not quite convinced in the glory of Jesus and in his love for you, or if you're like me and need every single day to be reminded of that, I want to close with this. Again, as we pointed out earlier, as the community around Mary and Martha saw Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus, they said, see how he must have loved him. Do you know how we can see how he must love us? Look to the cross. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, he said this in John 15. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for a friend. So friends, look to the cross and see how he must love you. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that you have the power of life and death in your hands. We thank you that you willingly stepped into the darkness and the grief of this world and entered into death itself so that we could have life with you. Lord, we thank you that you're with us until you come again through your spirit, that you love us and you give us what we need most. And Lord, we do ask that you would come again soon, that you would come to begin to work to make all things new again. But until then, Lord, we ask that you would use us to make the harvest, to make your family just a little bit bigger. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.